good to see you. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This week and next, we will spend wrapping up this great letter to the Thessalonians, and then we'll be off for a weekend for the uh, missions emphasis weekend, and then we'll kick off September 3rd with our study of the book of Exodus. So uh, we've got a great few weeks ahead of us. Again, if you have your copy of God's Word, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 22 uh, this morning. Well, in 1839, a man by the name of Charles Goodyear accidentally discovered vulcanization, a way of combining rubber, sulfur, and heat to create a rubbery substance that was flexible, yet at the same time it would hold its shape in hot or cold weather. Some six years later, Robert Thompson first conceived of an airfield tube to provide a cushion between a carriage and the road. But a rubber tube wrapped in leather turned out to be a failure. Some 40 years later would pass before the idea of a pneumatic tire would again be tested. In 1887, a man by the name of John Boyd Dunlop of Scotland became extremely frustrated as he watched his nine-year-old son struggle with his tricycle that was mounted with solid rubber wheels. So Dunlop, using a big wooden disc as a wheel, formed a tube using sheet rubber. He inserted a one-way valve, filling the tire with air until it was hard enough to support the weight of his son. To keep the air from escaping, Dunlop bent the valve and tied it off. He then attached the new tire to a wheel, wrapped the tube in Irish linen and fastened it to the wooden disc with nails. After testing his invention for several months, he applied for a patent for his pneumatic tire when it was then received on December 8th, or December 7th rather, 1888. Dunlop's tire that you can see here was an immediate commercial success initially used for bicycles and was well-proven and further developed in time for the birth of the automobile industry in the 1900s. Within a decade, by the way, of him applying for this patent, the air-filled tire had virtually replaced all solid rubber models. And here's a picture of him riding that bike That's going to be me riding to Omega in about three decades. (laughs) But some 50 years later, in the Mount Vernon Register newspaper, it featured an article that explained how to be successful in advertising on radio and TV, and that in order to do that, you had to speak a specific language. So then the article goes on to write down a collection of stylized phrases that were used by advertising men to promote products. And one of those phrases, and this is the earliest rendition of it, one of those phrases was, let's get down to where the rubber meets the road. Of course, we know that expression 
and we have no doubt used it ourselves, or we've no doubt heard someone else use it, but the point of that expression is ultimately taking knowledge to practice, taking theory to practice. It is the intersection of knowing something and doing something. Well, for us as Christians, it is taking doctrine and teaching into practice. And that is exactly what we find in our text this morning. Paul takes the theology and doctrine that he's laid out through this entire letter and begins moving into the practical, the application, uh, the implications for us as Christians where the rubber meets the road. So you follow along as I begin reading in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, and I'll read our text for us. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise, despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. So this passage is truly a rubber meets the road type of text. Paul has established the doctrine and theology that he found necessary to instruct the Thessalonians and now he finishes his letter, this first letter to the Thessalonians with several exhortations for the church to put in practice. And Paul isn't merely suggesting that the Thessalonians give these exhortations a shot. Rather, he firmly, strongly, and lovingly commands that they engage with each and every exhortation. So what we find in these closing verses are 11 total exhortations. That's a lot. You do the math there. We don't have much time to spend on each and every one of those. So 11 crucial exhortations Paul gives us here in these 10 verses. And I think it'll be helpful if we break down these exhortations in, into two major categories. So that's how we're going to look at them today. We'll start by identifying these major categories, and then we'll look through each and every one of these exhortations. So let's first begin together by considering uh, this first category, and these exhortations have to deal with how to be a faithful church member. How to be a faithful church member. So in this category, Paul begins with a first exhortation to appreciate the church's leaders or appreciate your leaders. Verse 12 says, but we request of you, brethren, 
that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And then Paul concludes, live in peace with one another. Now you remember that Paul wrote this letter around A.D. 50 or A.D. 51, uh, placing us roughly 20 years after the death, resurrection, of Christ and about 20 years after the birth of the church in Acts 2 at Pentecost. So the church is still in its infancy stages. And even more so, this church, the Thessalonians, they were a new, young, healthy, and vibrant church. But one of the immediate tasks that we see in the book of Acts was that the apostles took the gospel to the ends of the earth and they planted churches. But at the same time as they planted churches, it was their priority to establish a plurality of godly men to lead each individual church. So it wasn't merely planting churches and then just leaving the site or the city or the place, but it was their duty to plant a church in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and then to establish a plurality of elders or a plurality of godly men to be able to oversee that church. Now, as you know, that wasn't or isn't rather just a New Testament doctrine. In fact, if you go back and sort of do a biblical theology of leadership in the Old Testament, you will see that the pattern that is repeated over and over in the Old Testament scripture is that leadership always involves a plurality of men. Whether that was men overseeing tribes or clans, whether that was elders overseeing cities, uh, whether that was godly men overseeing nations and monarchies, that's always been the pattern. Wherever God has instituted his people and his institutions, specifically the church, it has always been the plan to have men oversee the church and those roles. So the Thessalonian leaders, because it was a new church, this also meant they had new what? Yeah, they had new leadership. They had new leaders. So knowing this, Paul exhorts the people to appreciate those who diligently labor among you. You can see that there in verse 12. Uh, the Greek word for appreciate is most often translated in the New Testament as to know or to know about someone. But what Paul means here is that the church needs to recognize honor and respect those whom God has appointed to leadership in his church. Now, it's important that we understand that that should take place in a local church, not because of the position, but because of the work which with leaders are called to do. So why should we appreciate leaders? Let's look at three reasons quickly. Paul gives them to us. First, because leaders diligently labor among you. What Paul means here is that we should appreciate and esteem church leaders because they are supposed to be working hard in leadership. They toil. They devote themselves to tending to the sheep. In fact, you'll remember that Jesus Christ told Peter that his main duty in John 21 was to do what? If you love my sheep, then you will 
tend to them. You, you, will, you will feed them. So Paul says here, we should esteem leaders because they diligently labor among you. They engage in difficult and exhausting labor is what he's saying. The second reason is, is because they have charge over you in the Lord. What Paul means here is that leaders go before the church. They stand before us. They preside over us. They watch over us, and they care for our souls. Uh, This word charge was often used in Greek literature of overseeing communities or, or groups of people. That is a function of a church leader. He's not a CEO, but rather he's a shepherd of souls. He's a shepherd of people. And because of that reason, we should esteem leaders. Paul gives a third reason, and that is because leaders give instruction. Because leaders give instruction. Now you're familiar with this Greek word, it's the word nuthetic. Nuthetic. If you're familiar with sort of the, the biblical counseling movement, um, the, the sort of resurgence of the biblical counseling movement in the 1970s and the 1980s, specifically by a man of J. Adams, there, there was a push for that movement to be identified as the nuthetic counseling movement. Uh, that word nuthetic just means instructive. It means to give instructive counseling or instructive uh, correction. Thankfully, they sort of changed the name of that movement to biblical counseling, a little more relatable there and a little more understandable as opposed to newthetic counseling, but that's what biblical counseling is. It's instruction. So Paul says, leaders give you instruction. And notice in your English Bible, these expressions are present tense participles meaning that the leaders aren't supposed to only do this on the Lord's day, but this is to be a repeated pattern of their life. This is a constant, ongoing uh, reality. Look at verse 13. Uh, Then Paul goes on to say, esteem your leaders very highly in love because of their work. I mean, this is the strongest language that the Apostle Paul could use here. Highly esteem your leaders. Again, this isn't because of the position. It isn't because of the status. It's because of their hard work. One commentator says, and I think this is on your handout so you can follow along with me as I read it, Uh, but he says, quote, the respect of the church was not on the basis of a gift possessed, but on the basis of the gift exercised properly. The respect of the church was due not on the basis of reputation or position, but on the basis of ministry performed. The minister who thinks his position alone should earn him the respect of the church has not read the scriptures. So Paul's primary point isn't prestige, it's not position, it's the actual doing of ministry. Paul says, because leaders have been called by God to labor and serve in Christ's church, that they should be esteemed and highly valued. In fact, leaders, they aren't the head of the church, but they're the under-shepherds because Christ is the church. And if leaders assume that proper role, then they should be highly esteemed. Now, you notice here at the end of verse 13, it's interesting 
how Paul sort of wraps up his discussion here on church leaders. Paul says, live in peace with one another. That's interesting, right? So there, there could have been some minor issues in this church as it relates to the leadership and the rest of the body of Christ. I, I don't think that it was a gigantic issue because Paul's had nothing but praise for uh, this church so far in his letter. But there could have been a handful of people or a couple of people that were dealing with uh, this issue. They, they were having trouble with the leadership for whatever reason. Uh, Paul simply says, look, live in peace with one another. Uh, this is part of a healthy church. Uh, this is why all the way back in chapter 1, Paul says of the Thessalonians that their faith and uh, their marks of a healthy church had gone forth to the ancient world. Uh, they were living above reproach. So just in case, if there was anyone struggling with this issue, Paul says, look, here's how we deal with leadership, and here's how we live in peace with them. So after giving this first exhortation to the leaders, Paul then moves into his second exhortation, and that is to counsel the brethren. To counsel the brethren. Paul says in verse 14, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. If you need a verse that identifies and describes biblical counseling, this is your verse. So Paul's first exhortation deals with how the body of Christ ought to react to their leaders. This verse deals with how the body of Christ must interact with one another. So not only do leaders play a massive role in the church, we see that all throughout the New Testament, but so does the rest of the congregation, the rest of the body of Christ. So in verse 14, Paul actually lays out a blueprint for us on how each and every Christian should counsel other Christians. So first off, Paul tells us that we need to admonish the unruly. We need to admonish the unruly. Again, uh, the application here is essentially never ending. Paul tells us within the body of Christ that it is our duty that we should absolutely care for other brothers and sisters in Christ. How do we do that? First off, he says we should admonish the unruly. Other translations, depending on the one that is sitting at your table, or maybe that you have pulled up on your phone, other translations say, warn those who are idle. Now you remember, if you're familiar with 2 Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul spends about 10 or 12 verses addressing those in the church who had become idle and become lazy. If you remember, he flat out says, if you don't work, you don't eat. So here, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says that we, as believers, as the body of Christ, we need to warn those who are being idle. We need to admonish those who are being complacent, to admonish those who are being lazy, whose behavior was unacceptable. 
Now, it's possible that some in the church had ignored Paul's teaching and thus weren't engaging in Christian disciplines, but, but, but it's hard to know exactly what Paul has in mind here. But here's the primary point, that the people whom Paul was addressing who were unruly or who were idle or complacent, Paul says, if you're a brother and sister in Christ, you need to go to them, you need to warn them, and you need to admonish them to help get them on the right trajectory, to help get them on the right course. I, I, I think I agree with most of the commentators who land on the fact that some of the Thessalonians had probably just become lazy in some of the simple Christian disciplines. Paul says, look, go get those brothers and sisters in Christ. Go get them and encourage them, admonish them, warn them about their slippage. Warn them that they need to be in the Word. Warn them that they need to meditate on Scripture. They need to pray the Scripture, and so on and so forth. They need to be confronted. So Paul says, admonish the unruly. Next, he says, to encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage those who are faint of heart. Paul says that there will be some in the Christian life that are discouraged, faint of heart. And they could be that way for a variety of reasons. Paul says, look, they don't need to be warned. That group of people doesn't need to be admonished. Those who are faint of heart, they need to be encouraged. You see, as brothers and sisters in Christ, at a local church here at Countryside, we have to discern the appropriate biblical approach and response that we must take as we interact with other believers. There are some that need to be directly warned, of course, in love. But there are some, according to Paul here, that are just flat out discouraged. Paul says, you need to come alongside them, put your arm around them, and you need to encourage them. And no matter the situation, no matter the circumstance, they are faint of heart, they need encouragement. Third, Paul says, we need to help the weak. We can counsel brothers and sisters here at Countryside by helping the weak. Now, Paul could have in mind physical weakness, And I think that's true. We should help those who are physically weak. But I think Paul also has in mind here spiritual weakness. Those that may be new to the faith. Those that are struggling with a particular doctrine. And Paul says, help those who are weak. It's interesting here, the word help, uh, it has the idea of taking a strong interest in that person. Getting in that person's life. You know people that are struggling, spiritually speaking. You may be struggling there yourself. Those are difficult times when people are weak and they are downcast and they are hurting. Paul says, don't warn that group of people. Paul says, help them. Help them. Take the strongest interest that you can in their life and just help them. And lastly, fourthly, Paul says that we must be patient with all or be patient with everyone. 
We don't need to complain about those who are unruly or unruly or idle. We don't need to grumble about those who are faint-hearted. We don't need to complain about those who are weak, physically speaking or spiritually seeking. Paul says here, we need to be patient with everyone. Uh, Paul has in mind that whatever your interaction is, whether you are having to warn someone because they are backsliding or whether you're putting your arm around someone because they need encouragement, that you are patient with that person. I remember back when I first came to understand the doctrines of grace, the fact that God was sovereign in salvation, election, regeneration, justification, all, all of those doctrines, when I, when I fully came to realize and understand those truths. And then I attempted to teach those truths to the 150 high school Bible students that I had in school that year. And I just didn't understand why they couldn't grab and understand that by the end of first period. I think we're so prone to expect maybe our good friends or maybe other brothers and sisters at Christ that we know of but that we aren't intimate with and we're not necessarily fellowshipping with on a regular basis. I think it's easy for us to think that we can give them a biblical truth and that immediately they'll do a 180, flip a switch, and they'll be great by the time they leave church today and go grab some barbecue. I think in some cases, in the Lord's kindness and grace, that is true. They understand the biblical truth. They see it in the text of Scripture. The Holy Spirit illumines their heart. And yeah, that change, at least from a, um, an instructive point of view, has taken place. But it's not always that quick. So as we build one another up in the Lord here at Countryside, as we press on in our own individual sanctification and Christ-likeness, there may be times where you have to approach some in this church based on 1 Thessalonians 5.14. So whenever that happens and whatever that might be, Paul says, just be patient in that circumstance. Be patient with all. So Paul continues in verse 15 with another exhortation. He says to seek the good of others. To seek the good of others. Paul writes, See that no one repays another with evil for evil. But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Now, as we've mentioned from time to time in our summer study of 1 Thessalonians, the Thessalonians were not well received in the culture. Remember that Thessalonica was right there in the middle of Macedonia, and Macedonia was a melting pot of false religions, and it was a melting pot of paganism and idolatry. So by default, these Christians would have received hostility and antagonism. It would have most definitely found its way to their doors. People would have treated them horribly, would have reviled them, treated them in evil means, in evil manners. But Paul says, do not repay evil with evil. 
Personal vengeance is what he describes here. Now, Paul is not saying that there should be no consequences or punishments for evil doing. Of course, we know that is what government is supposed to do. That is what legislation is put forth to do. It's to punish evildoers, Romans 13. But Paul says for Christians not to take it upon themselves and repay evil with evil, but to always seek that which is good. Now, of course, Paul probably included the evil culture that was weighing in on them, but Paul may have also had in mind the fact that other Christians may have done some evil toward a Christian. Paul says, in either case, always seek after that which is good. Do not take personal vengeance on people. Rather, display Christian virtues. And we could go through a whole slew of virtues in the New Testament on how Christians should be conducting themselves in this life. Let me give you a few. Love, compassion, comfort, encouragement, edification. Uh, The list goes on and on. Paul says, don't repay evil for evil, but seek that which is good. So he moves into another exhortation, the fourth exhortation in this passage. Paul says to rejoice in all things. To be a faithful church member, brothers and sisters, we must rejoice in not some things, but all things. We're familiar with the word rejoice. Of course, closely connected to the word joy. This means uh, to be in a state of happiness or a state of well-being, to be glad. The true Christian, no matter the situation, no matter the circumstance, he must be in a fixed state of well-being. This is important for us to see. This doesn't mean that we can't mourn. This doesn't mean that we can't grieve. This doesn't mean that we can't weep. So this exhortation isn't negating those things. There's a a proper time for us to grieve and to weep. We, We understand that. And there's more that we could add to that list. But what it does mean is that we need to live lives and walk down a path where we recognize what Christ has done for us in the gospel and that we deserve far worse and no matter what life brings, nothing is better than Christ. Does this life bring its trials and tribulations and difficulties and hardships? I mean, we could spend weeks, months, years in here sharing the difficulties that each and every one of us have been through to one degree or another, or from people that we know that have been through the hardships of life. Paul simply wants the Thessalonians, and by extension us, to rejoice in all things, to be glad in all things, to be fixed and firm in the gospel of Christ, knowing that things are well with our soul. I mean, you think about that beautiful hymn, right? It, it is well with my soul. 
That's what Paul's asking here, that we rejoice in all things. Well, the next exhortation that he gives, and I told you this was rapid fire here. We got to keep on moving. The next exhortation that Paul gives is that we must pray at all times. To be faithful church members, to be faithful in the body of Christ, we must, verse 17, Paul writes, pray without ceasing. Now, if there's any portion of 1 Thessalonians that we are most familiar with, it is this verse, pray without ceasing. I think it could be better translated, and you see this in other English translations, as pray continually. But what does that mean? Is Paul commanding that all of us pray 24-7 every second of our life? Well, well, of course not. In fact, if you were to survey all of Scripture, you won't find one uh, Christian or one uh, group or one people of God acting in such a way. In fact, you can think of Daniel chapter 6 where we're told that Daniel, he, he, he prayed three times per day. So no one in Scripture is praying 24-7, so Paul doesn't mean for us to literally be doing that. But what he does mean is that prayer ought to be the consistent pattern of our life. It should not be uncommon. It should be mainstream. It should be trending in your life. One commentator says, Quote, prayer was not limited or to be limited to prescribed hours, but should rather be a common and constant element in their daily life. Now, it always gets real quiet when you start asking people to think about their own prayer lives. But think about your own prayer life. I think we would all admit that we, we could do better, Right? Let me ask you, do you have an established time or times, plural, to pray throughout the day? Do you have a method of praying? Do you have a schedule? Maybe you can think about the content of your prayers. Do you pray the same thing every time? Or when something happens, are you quick to go to the Lord in prayer? Or maybe even... Prayer in your life is sort of a drag. Uh, maybe maybe it's, it's boring. Well, I would recommend and suggest that we all set aside certain times during the day of scheduled prayer. And since everybody's life is different, and some of us are early risers and some of us are not, you need to find a time during the day in which you can set aside specific time to pray. Now, it doesn't have to be like the Puritans where they set aside like three dozen different times during the day to pray. But you can take Daniel's pattern that I mentioned in Daniel 6. It says that he prayed three times per day. And of course, that probably ebbed and flowed based on his life circumstance, but that's a great starting point. But you find a time where you can schedule prayer. And I would suggest not starting by saying you're going to pray every morning for two hours. Set a goal that's obtainable. Start with a couple minutes. Get up to double digits. 
and so on and so forth. Look for times where you can set aside in your day to be able uh, to pray. And also, I would add after you do that, is to make a commitment in your reactions to different situations throughout today. Make a commitment for the first thing that you would do would, would be to pray would be to pray, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be audibly. Of course, we went through prayer here in the first hour in corporate worship, but God can hear your prayers whether you're just voicing them in your heart or you're actually saying the words. Now, Paul's primary point, again, isn't to make a strict legalistic schedule of prayer, but his primary point is is that our life, it ought to be characterized. The Christian life ought to be characterized by prayer. Now, if you don't know where to start, I would recommend several resources down in our bookstore. We've got several resources that you can get that sort of do all the scheduling and the mapping out of and the discipline of prayer for you. I've recommended this one a few times, but I'll recommend it again. It's called Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. It's like 100 pages, so you can read this thing inside, away from the summer heat. You can read that this week. Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. We've got copies down in the bookstore. He just sort of lays out an easy pattern, an easy routine on on how to pray Scripture. He gives you a model for that. Another book I would recommend is by Pastor Tom. It's called The God Who Hears. He, He just reads Scripture and then prays that Scripture. You'll notice that the prayer lines up with the Scripture that's at the beginning of each section. Another one of my favorites is called Be Thou My Vision. It was uh, written and edited by Jonathan Gibson, a seminary professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. We've got it down at our bookstore. Again, he's just sort of laying out a map, a roadmap to guide you through uh, how to pray and and what to pray for and those things. And there's probably a dozen of those resources down uh, in the bookstore. So Paul exhorts the believers, make prayer a priority in your life. Well, then next, Paul says to express get gratitude to God. Express gratitude to God. So not only are we to pray at all times, to have a life that's characterized by prayer, but Paul then exhorts the believers, verse 18, in everything give thanks. Be grateful, be thankful express appreciation, express thanks, return thanks. A lot of different ways that you could say that. But Paul has in mind not merely a general giving thanks to God, but he qualifies it. He says, in all circumstances, in all things, in everything give thanks. In all things give thanks to God, no matter what. Paul says, give thanks to God. When life is going well, when life is difficult, when life is hard, and everything in between, Paul says, give thanks. Express your gratitude to God. Now, of course, Paul, Paul, he doesn't mean that we thank God for evil events, right? Like we think of that Genesis 50, 20, When what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. Well, we're not just like, you know, all standing up high-fiving for all of the evil that the the brothers did to Joseph, right? 
So we're not grateful for evil and sin and, and those wicked things. But we can thank God that he is sovereign over them and that he providentially works them and uses them for his glory and your good. That's, that's what Paul means. Look, let's call evil evil and let's call what's wicked wicked. But understand that we give thanks to the fact that God is able to use those things for his glory and our good. Notice the end of verse 18. For this is God's will for your life in Christ Jesus. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul says that Christians must rejoice, we must pray, and we must give thanks. This is God's revealed will for us. I'm sure you've had people ask you before, what is God's will for uh, my life or your life? Well, Paul tells us right here. Paul tells us, here's his will for the Christian. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. This is the heart of God's plan for you. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. So Paul gives six exhortations on how to be a faithful biblical church member. Of course, there are more in the New Testament, but he focuses on those six. But there's a second category of exhortations that Paul gives, and let's move into that category. And that is that Paul tells us how we should respond to the prophetic word. How we should respond to the prophetic word. Now this portion of scripture can be tricky if we miss out on the larger context as it relates to the New Testament church and the fact that when Paul was writing this letter, the entire New Testament did not exist. So when Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, most scholars agree that as he's writing 1 Thessalonians in 50 or 51 AD, that there were probably only two New Testament letters in circulation at this time. Most likely the book of James written around AD 46, and then most likely the book of Galatians written um, maybe just a few weeks or months before 1 Thessalonians. So because the New Testament had not been written yet, God through the Holy Spirit gifted certain men in the first century with what we would call revelatory gifts or miraculous gifts that would be used to communicate his revelation to the churches, his divine revelation to the churches. Again, uh, let me say it this way. No New Testament existed. So God gifted certain men in the first century to be a channel of his divine revelation until the entire New Testament was completely written. It's important for us to understand that here. So God communicated to first century Christians and churches through supernatural revelatory gifts. You know these gifts. They're in 1 Corinthians. We're talking about the gift of tongues. We're talking about the gift of prophecy. We're talking about word of knowledge. These types of gifts. So in the church of Thessalonica, there would have been men, including the apostles, whom God had gifted through the Holy Spirit to communicate new revelation to them on how they should conduct themselves in the church. Okay, So that's sort of the background here before we get into these exhortations. 
that will help us. So with that in mind, what does he exhort the Thessalonians to do? Well, first off, he says to embrace the Spirit's work. Embrace the Spirit's work. That's verse 19. You're familiar with this verse as well. Do not quench the Spirit. This means to extinguish. Quench means to annihilate. What Paul means, and this is important, that first century churches had to be careful not to extinguish or annihilate the Holy Spirit's work through these miraculous revelatory gifts. He gave men to be a channel of divine revelation and to exhort local churches. For whatever reason, and we don't know, but for whatever reason, there were some in Thessalonica that may have been quenching or attempting to annihilate or restrict these gifts. Paul says, don't snuff out the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit, but embrace the Holy Spirit's work. That's what he's getting at in verse 19. Now, what were the Thessalonians supposed to embrace? They weren't supposed to quench the Spirit. What were they to embrace? That's the next exhortation. They were to embrace the Spirit's word. Look at verse 20. So Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. Now in verse 20, he says, do not despise prophetic utterances. The Thessalonians in Paul's day needed to know that they needed to embrace the true work of the Spirit and to embrace these prophetic utterances from these gifted men. But apparently some of them had been despising these prophetic utterances. Paul says, don't do that. There are men that will come to your church with divine revelation because they have been uniquely gifted with it, 1 Corinthians 12, When they speak that revelation, don't despise what they have to say. Now Paul goes on with the next exhortation. When you hear these men speak, in verse 21, Paul says to cultivate a discerning heart. He says, look, don't embrace everything that everyone says. Verse 21, but examine everything Carefully. Now, you know this to be true. All throughout the New Testament, Paul describes how to identify false teachers and also how to identify false teachers' teaching. So, Paul isn't telling all of the Thessalonians, hey, look, be gullible. Whenever someone says that they're proclaiming a word from God or giving a word from God, he's not saying, hey, just be gullible and accept it. No. He says, examine everything, test it, verify it carefully examine what they are saying. If you remember back to 1 John chapter 4 and our Sunday morning series through 1 John, remember 1 John 4, 1 and 2 begins with test the spirits. Remember Pastor Tom titled that entire section of 1 John, that sermon series, Recognizing False Teachers. Yeah, Paul's telling the Thessalonians, look, test what people are saying. Test what they are saying and do it carefully. So after they test what is being said, what are they supposed to do with it? That's the next exhortation. Number four, 
Paul says to hold fast to the good. Verse 21, hold fast to that which is good. Hold on to, tightly grip that which is good. The prophetic word that was the authentic word from God, hold on to that, embrace it as the word of God. At the same time, if the word wasn't from God, notice what Paul says in this exhortation, to flee from the evil. If someone gives a prophetic word in the first century, which happened, and it was from God, hold fast to it. If it was not a word from God, if it was from a false teacher or a false prophet, flee from it. Paul exhorts and instructs the Thessalonians to embrace that which is truly from the Spirit of God and to reject or keep away that which is not from God. Now, as I've mentioned, this was a first century issue. So what is the timeless application for us as it relates to the prophetic word? The timeless application is that we as Christians must only embrace the 66 books that we have in our Bibles. They are the divine words of God and anything beyond must be rejected as the word of God. We hold fast to this book and we reject anything outside of this book as truth from God. That's the timeless application. Well, there's definitely more we could say about that portion of Scripture, but our time is up this morning. Well, for us, this is where the rubber meets the road, and Paul lays out for us exactly what we need to be pursuing in the Christian life. May God help us not only to know these exhortations, but to implement them and to practice them in our own Christian lives. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for this portion of Scripture. Uh, We ask that you would engrave these truths, these exhortations on our mind and our heart. Help us meditate upon them this week and to pursue implementing them so we can live faithfully as members of your church, those who have been redeemed by your blood. Give us strength, give us endurance to honor you in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.